One of the unique things about me is I did grow up as a Boy Scout. Uh, some of you know, uh, any of you Boy Scouts or former Boy Scouts? And a few of you, that's good. Uh, my dad, many of you know my dad died when I was nine years old. And so uh, growing up, Boy Scouts was a great outlet for me to learn to be a boy. You know, I learned how to shoot BB guns. I learned how to use a, a pocket knife. I learned how to tie knots. I learned how to start fire. I learned how to start campfires, I should clarify. And... Uh, <laughs> that could have been bad. So as a Boy Scout, though, one of the things that I look back and I have fond memories of is I had these wonderful outdoor adventures. I had the opportunity where we had some leaders that said, hey, let's go rock climbing. And so they taught me and, and my friends how to rock climb. And that was awesome. And we had a, we had a period where we did a lot of backpacking. So I got to learn how to go backpacking. And uh, then we had another season where we said, let's go learn how to explore underground caves. And so we would go in these long caves and we would spend hours upon hours with just flashlights crawling through these crazy caves. And probably one of my favorite outdoor adventures that I did while I was a Boy Scout is we had this great idea that we would climb to the top of Mount Hood. Now, Mount Hood is in northern Oregon. It is approximately 11,249 feet above sea level. And so we had this crazy idea that as a scout troop, me and my friends, we would get some leaders and we would climb to the very top of this mountain. Now, if you've ever done any mountain climbing, you understand that there is some training that has to happen. You have to be prepared to actually climb the mountain. And so I had a buddy named Doug, and him and I were going to be climbing partners. And so we did all this training together. We, we learned how to use crampons. Crampons are these sweet little claws that go on your, on your boots. So that way you can have traction as you're, as you're climbing up the snow and the ice. And we had to learn how to kick out our steps because you can't just walk. Because if you just walk, you're going to lose a step. And so you had to kick in your steps. So then we, we had to learn how to use a, uh, an ice axe. So that way you could work to climb up the ice. So then as well as when you're sliding down, you used it to slow yourself down. We had to learn how to be um, harnessed together because this mountain, there were some, some dangerous parts of the mountain. So we had to be roped up together so that way in case one of us fell, there was somebody hopefully there to, to catch them. And so my friend and I, we did all this training. We had all this prep work that had to happen for us to actually be able to go onto the mountain. And so we did that. We did all the prep work and finally the day came. Finally, the weekend came that we were going to climb to the top of Mount Hood. The first day we got up there, we started about uh, a 5,500 foot level. Um, and, and we hiked up that first day, uh, 3,000 feet maybe. We, we were probably about 8,500 to, to 9,000 square feet above, square feet. <laughs> uh, 9,000 feet above uh, sea level is where we were. And we made our base camp and we set up camp and we kind of stayed the night and kind of figured out this is a good place to go. And then we woke up really early the next morning so we could begin our ascent to the top. And this was a treacherous hike because there was a ton of ice. It had a pretty steep incline. There was boulders in different places. There was crevasses. And you had to be really careful as you were climbing up this mountain. And so we got about two, hour, two hours up into uh, the climb. And my, friend, my, my, my buddy, my climbing partner says, hey, hey man, I, I, I'm really tired. I don't know if I can keep going. And we tried to encourage him. Come on, man. Come on. Let's keep going. We've worked so hard for this, you know, and, and we got to keep going. He says, man, I'm just so tired, you know, and, and my, my lungs, they're having a hard time acclimating to the thin air. You know, I'm not getting enough oxygen. And, and, and he says, man, I think I'm going to quit. I'm like, no, remember, we said we aren't going to use that word. We aren't going to say I quit. But ultimately, 
my friend said, I can't do this anymore. So another scout leader took him and they went back down the mountain. And about 45 minutes to an hour after my buddy left, we, we, we took the final step to climb on top of Mount Hood. And it was a beautiful, clear day. Uh, there was not a cloud in the sky, so we could see all the way down to southern Oregon. There's, there's some mountains called the, the, uh, the Three Sisters. You could see the Three Sisters. You could see all the mountains in Washington. And it was just this amazing experience, something that I will never, ever forget. But I think about this time that we climbed Hood, and I think about my friend. I think about how close he was. I think about all the hard work that he put into this climb and how close he was to the top. He was, he was probably an hour from being able to experience this amazing thing on top of this mountain. And I begin to think, how much of our life is kind of like mountain climbing? I mean, in life... You know, we have these great hopes of success. We have these great promises from God of these things that we want to see in our life. And we want to see God's blessing. And we have these great hopes. And we set out in our life with these wonderful hopes. But then the reality is, it takes a lot of work. There's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of trial. There's a lot of, uh, 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 of testing of character, of struggle for us to actually get to what God has prepared for us. I think about Think about being a parent. Think about being a parent. As a parent, your goal for your kids is that they become productive members of society. Your goal is that they graduate school. Your goal is that they marry a great spouse. Your goal, my kids, listen up. Your goal is that they have three or four grandkids to give to me. I mean, this is what you have. And ultimately, your most important goal is that your kids love Jesus. And they love his bride. They love the church their entire lives. But the reality is, man, before you see that come to fruition, there's struggle as a parent. There's hardship. There's discipline. There's, there's training. There's all sorts of things that happen. There's much heartache involved in that process to get your kids to that end goal. I think about marriage. When my wife and I were, were newlyweds, I remember I used to look at, at older couples who seemed like they had this great marriage. And I thought, you know, I want to have a marriage like that. I want my marriage to be like that. And what I have found is those marriages that are like that have come through difficulty, have come through a couple learning to forgive each other and love each other through their faults and learn how to extend grace back and forth. I think about business. Nobody starts out their business as a superstar. There's difficulty. There's, there's work that has to be put into it to build that business to a successful point. I think about athletics. I think whatever, whatever it is that you want to do athletically, you don't just wake up one day with six-pack abs. People have put some hard work into that stomach to get those ab muscles to show up. I think about church planning. You know, somebody once told me, you know, if you just preach the gospel, the church will grow. <laughs> you know what? I wish that was true. But what I have found is, is there's this character building process where God wants to show that we are faithful in the small things before God gives us the, the, the big things and the great things. And life, we found that there's going to be a building process. There's going to be a, a growing process. There's going to be stress. There's going to be character development. There's going to be challenging things that are put in our, in our path. King David, 
probably by the end of his life, I think he understood this principle that before you get the, the success and the glory that God has for you, and, 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 and it, there becomes this difficulty. We've been in this series on, on King David for the past couple of months, looking at the li- King David's life, and we say David is a man after God's own heart, so he becomes the example for you and I to be men and women after God's own heart. So today, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27. We'll start there. 1 Samuel chapter 27. And we're going to see how David deals with this time of testing, this, this difficulty, this character-building process. See, if we remember what we've learned about King David, King David was hand-selected by God to be the next king of Israel. He was a teenager when he was anointed by Samuel the prophet. And as a teenager, he went and he fought Goliath and defeated Goliath. And then as a teenager, still as a teenager, he became a successful leader in Saul's army. Until the day that Saul became jealous of David. And Saul made it his personal mission to seek David's life. And this carried on not just for weeks. That carried into months. That carried into years. And now this has gone on for nearly a decade Nearly a decade has David been on the run from Saul's vengeance, from Saul's rage against David. David has spent the last 10 years uh, hiding behind trees, sleeping in caves, doing whatever he can to keep Saul from getting the best of him. David can't go to his house. He can't go to his wife. That's been cut off. He can't go to his mentor, Samuel. That's been cut off. He can't go to his best friend, David. That's been cut off. He can't even go to the priest or the pastor at Nob. That's been cut off. And now David has 600 soldiers who are now depending on him for leadership and for provision. And these 600 soldiers also have their wives and their children and their families that are all looking to David for leadership. David's also got two wives of his own. We could probably make a joke right here, but I'm not going to get into that. Polygamy is a horrible idea. I don't know how anybody would survive with more, more than one wife. I love my wife, but I don't know how that works out. So here, David, he, he, is, he is running from a crazed king. David is hiding in the hills. He's sitting in this ragtag group of soldiers, feeding more than a thousand mouths. You would say that David was, was overwhelmed, was, was stressed out. We're going to see David becomes without hope. He has no end in sight. And it's in that moment when, when the trials, when the difficulties of our life are presented, when it seems too, too, too much for us to take, there becomes two roads to take. Think about, think about that prom, poem by Robert Frost. You've got two roads to take, the one that is less traveled. And then you've got this other road that I've called the road too often traveled. See, what happens is when we're faced with this difficulty, what happens is we begin to walk away from God's will. We begin to, to start living for ourselves instead of following and being obedient to God. Because when we're following God, doing the right things, sometimes there becomes that difficulty. And we say, man, this is just too hard. I want to take the easy route. And the easy route seems to be, let's just stop pursuing God's will. And let's just do what feels right, what feels good, what makes life easy. So that's what we're going to study today. The road that is too often taken. Before we jump in, would you pray with me? God, we're just excited for the opportunity 
to be here today to open up your word. God, I'm thankful that uh, we are able uh, to open up your word, that God, we don't have to just listen to a pastor's opinion. But God, your word is living and active, and you've given given it to us through the Bible. God, I pray that you would help us to lean in. I pray that you would help us to understand. God, I pray that you would use us to convict us and to draw us closer to you, God, that you would grow us deeper in love with you. God, I pray that your spirit would rest on us. I pray that you would deal with us exactly what we need to hear. God, we trust that you would do that today. We thank you for your presence, and we ask this in your name. Amen. In the midst of difficulty, we often forget about God. We forget about the promises of God. We take the road that is too often traveled. David did. Look what it says in in chapter 27, verse 1. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David is at this point without hope. He sees no end in sight to the difficulty that's in front of him. He can't handle being on the run from from Saul anymore. So he has no hope, and most importantly, he has no God. Notice David here, all he can focus on is Saul. We've talked about this principle in in, in this sermon series so far. We've talked about how when David, when his eyes were on God, when his focus was on God, he could do crazy, amazing things. Goliath. Goliath was defeated because David saw God more than he saw Goliath. But the moment we begin to take our eyes off God, the, more, the moment we put our attention on our difficulties and on our, on our hardships and on our circumstances, that's when we begin to fail. That is the way the life of David plays out. So here's David. He doesn't inquire of God. He doesn't seek after God. God isn't even on his mind. David doesn't seek the counsel of, of the godly people around him. When Saul first started pursuing David, David went to uh, his wife. He went to uh, his, his mentor, Samuel. He went to his best friend, Jonathan. He even went to the priests at Nob, the pastors, and said, Hey, can you give me some advice? Can you help me here? But David doesn't do this now. David doesn't consult anybody except himself. He consults himself, and he took, look at the advice that he gives himself. He said in verse 1, he says, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. You think David would have known better. You think he would have known better. Think about all the promises that God had given to him. I mean, I mean, I mean Samuel, who was the prophet. Samuel's the, the mouthpiece for God. He came to, to David and he anointed him as the next king over Israel. Jonathan, who was David's best friend, he reassured that same promise to him in, in, in 1 Samuel 23. He, David said to, or Jonathan said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Last week, God gave reassurance to David through uh, the story with Abigail. Abigail said in chapter 25, it said, And the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you a prince over Israel. David, we're reaffirming the promise that God has made to you. God made that promise to you. Even Saul. Saul even reaffirmed that promise. Chapter 24, Saul himself says this. 
And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Time after time after time, these promises to David are reaffirmed. But now, David doesn't listen to any of those promises. He ignores all those promises. Instead, he's convinced himself, I will perish. I will never rule over Israel. You know, we, we, we sometimes do these same things. We have the same kind of attitude. We, we think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never be a good parent. I'll never get married. I'll, I'll never get over this addiction. I'll never reunite with my family. I'll, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never. And these are the words that come out of our mouth. This pessimistic attitude. You know why we say things like this, though? We say things like this when our attention is on ourselves. God has never given you or I a pessimistic thought. Those thoughts come from our own minds. And they can be completely devastating. We have to condition ourselves. We have to condition ourselves to see God more than ourselves. We have to force ourselves to see God more than the difficulty, more than the circumstance in front of us. We have to see God more. So David, he's pessimistic. He becomes despondent. And look what he decides to do. He says in verse 1, There is nothing better for me that I should do except to escape to the land of the Philistines. David defects to the hands of the enemy. He leads his men to the Philistines. These are the enemy of God's people. This is the land of, of idols, of false gods. Essentially, David's deciding, I'm going to go pitch my tent in Satan's backyard. And this becomes such a great illustration for us this morning. Because at some point, many of us have made the same decision. We've decided to take the road that is too often traveled. David is the illustration of a Christian who is deliberately opts to live for the things of this world instead of being obedient to the will of God in his life. This is what we call carnal Christianity, worldly Christianity, abandoning the things of God. And this is a road that is all too often taken. This is settling for things that seem easier than what God has prepared for us. David is choosing to deliberately disobey God and operate according to the flesh. This is what we do as men and women when we are a Christian on the inside, but we live as if we aren't on the outside. To make matters worse, verse 2 and 3 continues. It says, So David arose and he went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of uh, Mach, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish uh, at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, uh, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. You see, when David, when he left his wilderness home and he retreated to Philistine country, he didn't go alone. The 600 men that had joined him at the cave of Dullam, he takes them with him. And not only that, they take their families with them as well. And David takes his wife and his kids and takes all of them into the land of the enemy. See, we think, we think when we compromise, we think it just affects me. It's just on me and it won't have an effect on your family. 
See, when you make that decision, you're completely wrong. Because when you choose a course that is not God's plan, it affects everybody who trusts you, everybody who looks to you, who depends on you, those who look up to you, and those who believe in you. Even though they are innocent, they become contaminated by your sinful choices. We begin to think, well, well, why would anybody, you know, why would anybody choose this road that is too often taken? What does it offer? David will show us a few things that this road offers. First, he's going to show us that it offers a false sense of security. It says in verse 4, And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Saul stopped pursuing David. He, David thought, hey, I'm safe here. Finally, Saul has stopped chasing me, hunting me, haunting me. The pressure's gone. What a relief. And this is the way it works. Sure, for a season, it seems like you go, get, you go ahead and get drunk and, and you'll have a great time for a while. You can move out on your spouse and you relax for a time. You men indulge in porn and you'll be entertained for a season. But soon enough, the temptation sinks in. The waves of guilt begin to overwhelm you. The loneliness of breaking up sets in. Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. See, hiding out with the enemy, it will only bring you temporary relief. First thing it offers you is a false sense of security. The second thing that comes with submitting yourself to, is, is submitting to the enemy's cause. Look what, look what it says in verse 5. It says, Then David said to Achish, If I had found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in, your, in, in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. And here's the kicker. He said, For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? David, he makes an allegiance. He makes a deal with the king. And here's what he says. He calls himself your servant. Servant of the enemy. This is the once proud future king of Israel. This is, is, this is the conqueror of Goliath, the future king. And now he submits himself to the cause of the enemy. I'm your servant. Third thing we'll see that happens when we begin to take that road that's too often taken, when we refuse the will of God, is you'll see that it turns into a lengthy period of compromise. It says in verse 6 and 7. So that day, Achish the, gave him Ziglag. Therefore, Ziglag belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. You see, the lie that we tell ourselves is we're just going to indulge in this sin once. We're just going to do it once. Just once. I'll go sleep with the enemy, and then I'll come back into the things of God just once. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't work like that. David is here for 16 months. This is the way that sin works. It's never just once. Sin always has a deadly pull to it. And and we we have these scars that are formed in our memories because we remember saying, it's just going to be once. It's just one little drink. It's just one little thing. It's not that big of a deal. In Genesis chapter 12, 
when Abraham, he goes down to Egypt, this wasn't just a weekend trip. Abraham was there for quite a while. Then it's in Genesis chapter 13. Abraham's nephew, Lot, he decides, hey, I'm going to go down to Sodom. And initially, he pitches his tent outside of the city. But before long, erosion begins to set in. Before long, Lot is living inside of the city. Eventually, Lot becomes one of the elders who sat at the gate of the city. Ultimately, Lot became identified with Sodom, intoxicated by its shameless lifestyle. David is here in the enemy territory for 16 months. David is the man after God's own heart. He, he's, quote, he, he's called in 2 Samuel 23, he's referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Yet here he is for 16 months sleeping with the enemy. During those 16 months, David did not write one single psalm. Of course, you can't sing the Lord's song when you've linked arms with the enemy. Psalm 137 says the, the Jewish captives in Babylon, they asked this question. They said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Isn't this the way it works? We think about people that we know, and we think about, man, they've stopped pursuing a relationship with me. They stopped coming to church, and oftentimes it's because it's hard to live in both worlds. It's hard to link arms with the enemy as well as the church. It's hard to want to praise God when you're praising Satan as well. There's not much joy flowing out of David's life during this season of his life. And because David had opted for the road that is too often taken, he thought things would be easy. He thought things would be right. But so often it's a case, David is going to find injury. He's going to find devastation as a result of living apart from God. Ultimately, David's going to come to a point of despair. If you flip your Bible forward a couple pages, 1 Samuel chapter 29 Here, the Philistines, they've decided, hey, we're going to go and we're going to attack Saul. We're going to attack King Saul in Israel. And so David and his men, remember, they've sold out. They've aligned themselves with the Philistines. They've aligned themselves with the enemy. So when the enemy is getting ready to attack Israel, David and his men show up. Hey, we're ready to fight with the enemy. We're ready to fight against Israel. Picture this. Picture the U.S. Marines joining forces with ISIS because that's what happened when David and his men said, hey, we're here to fight with the Philistines. However, when David and his men, when they arrived to join the Philistine army, the Philistine officers took issue with the idea. And it says in verse, chapter 29, verse 3, it says, the commander of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Why are these guys here? Why are they showing up to battle with us? In verse 4, they say, send the men back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go to battle with us, lest the battle in the battle he become an adversary to us. They say, no, this isn't going to work. We don't want David on our side, because what if David turns on us? Achish, the king, he tries to defend David. He says, come on, guys, he's with us now. He's been faithful to us for 16 months. He's on our side. But the Philistine officers are very clear. We don't want him. We don't trust him. Send him back. And at this point, we begin to see the results of taking the road that's too often taken. 
We begin to see the, road, the results of, of abandoning God's will for something that appears easier. First thing we'll see is due to David's rebellion, David loses his identity. He can't side with Israel. The Philistines don't want him. He's a man with nowhere to belong. He can't say I'm with the Philistines. He can't say I'm with Israel. He's lost his identity. And this is what happens when we rebel against God. We lose our identity. We start asking ourselves these questions. Who am I? What is my mission? What is my purpose? Where am I going? What is my life all about? Who, who, who has my true allegiance? And these are tough questions that don't really have an answer. David has this, this identity crisis. He's, he's neither a Philistine, neither an Israelite. And this is just like a carnal Christian. When we abandon the will of God, we don't quite feel comfortable with the things of God Yet we begin to lose interest in the things of Satan. And we're kind of in this battle for identity on, on whose will we really be. Shortly after struggling with his identity, David will lose his satisfaction. It says in verse 8, David asks the king, said to him, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King. See, the few benefits of having allegiance with the enemy, they're now lost due to the liabilities. No, you can't join us, David, because you might turn against us. Sure, walking away from God, pursuing sin, it feels pleasurable. It feels freeing. It might even feel delightful. But eventually, eventually the bills come due. And you've got to pay the piper. And we quickly begin to realize that the freedom that we found was only temporary. You'll realize that the purpose, the passion, now that's fleeting. It's gone in an instant. One day, sin will leave you worse off than when you started. And then if you flip a page to chapter 30, we'll see the third result of, of, of abandoning God's will, of pursuing ourselves, is you're going to see there's personal consequences. In chapter 30, David leads his unwanted men back to their city, back to Ziklag, only to find that their village has been burned to the ground. While David and his men were out trying to join with the Philistines, the Amalekites, who was another tribe in the region, they had attacked their city and they had destroyed it. And worse off than just the physical destruction was the personal cost. Because all of the wives and all of the children, they'd been kidnapped. They'd been taken as prisoners by the enemies. Verse 4 tells the response from David and his men. Chapter 30, verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength. Rejected by the Philistines. Pillaged by the Amalekites. No country to fight for. No family to come home to. Can things get any worse for David? Sure they can. Tempers begin to flare. And David's men start looking for someone to blame. It says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because they were all bitter in the soul, 
each for his sons and his daughters. You put yourself in David's shoes. You begin to wonder if David regrets his decision to take that road that is too often taken. You got a picture of David thinking back and thinking, and those were good old days when we were hiding out in the cave. Man, that sucked that David was, Saul was pursuing us, but man, those were the good old days, much better than we have today. There was no Philistine rejection in the caves. There was no Amalekite attacks in the caves. My men loved me. My wife and my family, they were with me. And now in the ruins of, of his city, the men are picking up stones to stone him. And you've got to imagine that David begins to regret that prayerless decision to abandon the will of God and begin to take the easy road, the easy life. He's hit rock bottom following a bunch of bad decisions, of wrong turns, of regretful moves. Is there a solution for us when our hope is gone? When joy is just a sweet lady who married Dan 50 years ago? Is there a solution when you're tired of trying? When you're, when you're, when you're tired of forgiving? When you're tired of hard weeks? When you're tired of hard-hearted people? Is there any hope when you've taken the road that is too often taken and abandoned God? There is hope. And this is why, this is why I love King David. This is why, even though David screwed up in the story majorly, this is why David encourages me to become a man after God's own heart. Because he's taken the wrong turn. He's taken the wrong road, just like many of us have taken the wrong road ourselves. But you see, that's not the end of the story. God is a God of second chances. A third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, in my case, 122nd chances. That is the kind of God, is, God he is. He is a picture of love. And when we come to him, his arms are wide open. And David is going to show us how we can get back to the will of God. How we can get back on the road that we should have taken long ago. Verse 6. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. First way to get back to the will of God is just to return to God. David, he's failed to acknowledge God for the past 16 months. And now he's suffering immensely. But now finally, David is going to remember God. See, you and I, we have to stop talking to ourselves. We have to stop talking to ourselves. And more importantly, we have to stop listening to ourselves. We have to start praying and remembering who God is and what we know to be true about him. Jesus invites us to come to him. Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. The thing about Jesus inviting us is there isn't a precursor on who can come to him. This isn't just the people who are good can come to me and I'll give you rest. No, he's saying every one of us, no matter if we've taken the wrong road, no matter how much sin we've been in, no matter the fact that we've abandoned God, God says, come to me and I will give you rest. He's calling all of us, even those of us who have abandoned him time and time again. He's calling us to himself and saying, come to me. The second thing we see from David 
is he sought godly counsel. Verse 7 says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, he said, Bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought him the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord and said, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall they overtake them? And he answered, Pursue them, for you shall surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue. See, you don't want to. Broken people, they love broken people. Hurting people, they want to hang out with hurting people. We, we love to commiserate with others who can commiserate alongside of us. And we avoid people who will correct us. We avoid people who will give us the direction we need most. I've been in this, this Get Fit program for a little bit. Kind of like a cheap man's P90X. And trying to get in shape. And, and, and it's been interesting because I feel, I feel every time I walk by that fridge, I feel that fridge come and saying, hey, come and join me. Come and open me up and see what you can find. I hear those potato chips saying, come and commiserate with me. Come, I'll commiserate with you. But every time I play one of those videos, the personal trainer is in my face telling me exactly what I need to hear. And I tell you, I hate the guy. I hate him. But I love him. And it's this weird, awkward relationship where I need that kind of encouragement and, 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 and accountability. And you and I, we need godly counsel. We need people around us who will hold us accountable, who will give us correction, who will give us direction, who will not just tell us we're awesome, but will have those challenging conversations that we need to have. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. So we have to come back to God. We have to seek godly counsel. And third thing that Davis will teach us, David will teach us is don't give up. Don't give up. Verse 9 says, So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, and those who were with him stayed behind. And the story continues that David pursued the enemy and up getting uh, a slave who had been abandoned who helped them figure out where they were. And they went and they, they, they defeated the Amalekites and they saved every one of their wives, every one of their children, and brought it all back. See, the idea is don't give up. I think about my friend as we're climbing to the summit of Mount Hood. Man, don't give up. You are so close. You're an hour from the top. And it's going to be an amazing experience. It's going to be so remarkable to be on top of the world and see as far as you can see. Man, don't give up. Don't give up. See, the road to, that we too often take, the road that David chose, that's not the only choice. God has plans for every one of us. And he wants to mold us. And he wants to use us in mighty ways for his glory. And the thing is, we can't be... We can't be misled by our circumstance. Yes, it seems difficult, but we have no clue if the end is right in front of us. If God's blessing of whatever it is we're pursuing, it might be right in front of us. God's promises are real. God loves each and every one of us, and he has amazing plans for us that we would be used by him for his glory. And the thing is, don't give up. Don't give up. God has not abandoned you. And at, that very, at this very moment, God might be preparing the angels for you right now. He might be working out the details to solve your difficulty. Just don't give up. Stay at it. 
Stay at it. Stay on the, 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 on the road. Stay in the race. Stay in the fight. Stay faithful to God. Give grace just one more time. Be generous just one more time. Just, just teach one more class. Encourage one more person. Swim one more stroke. Take one more step. Don't give up. Because we have no clue and that the end might be right in front of us. We could be so close to, the, to, to God's blessing on our lives. Just don't give up. See, if you've taken that road that's too often traveled, today's the day to get off that track and get back to the will of God, to get back on track on pursuing him. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. We are so thankful for your grace. God, I know that there are some in here. God, they've been on that road that's too often traveled. They've said, God, sometimes your plans are so hard. Seems so difficult. So God, I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to pursue what's easy. I'm going to pursue myself. I'm going to pursue sin. I'm going to take the easy road. And God, it's not an easy road. It leads to destruction. God, I pray for those in here today that that's them. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would remember you. That they would say, God, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to your will. I'm going to pursue the things you have for me, God, even though it is difficult, even though it's not instantaneous. God, it's better than the alternative. God, I pray that they would remember you, that they'd be willing to seek godly counsel, that they'd be willing to, to surround themselves with people who are pursuing God's will in their lives, who will encourage them and hold them accountable. God, I pray that they would commit to the church. God, isn't that the picture of the church? People walking together, encouraging and supporting and, and holding accountable so we can all pursue the will of God in our lives. God, I pray for those but this is a struggle. The thought is in front of them. It'd be so easy to take the easy way out. God, I pray for them, for the strength that they wouldn't give up. That God, that, that passion would be rekindled within them. That they would keep fighting. That they would keep pursuing. God, you are a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. God, I pray that today we would cry out to you and say, God, would you use us again? God, would you forgive me again? God, I will follow you. I will submit to you. I will obey you. And I will trust you. Even in the difficulties, I will trust you because you are good. Because you do love me. Because you have plans to use me for your glory. God, I thank you for that grace. I thank you for the times that I've needed to come back. Say, God, I'm sorry. God, would you forgive me? God, would you welcome me back in? God, I pray that you would use this group of people here, this church, in a mighty way. God, that your kingdom would expand. God, that's what we want. We want to see more people come into a relationship with you. So God, I thank you just for your presence. 
I thank you for meeting with us. God, I pray that we would be encouraged to keep fighting. And God, as we have the opportunity to respond to your word through worship right now, God, this is intentional. This is a a time we believe God's word isn't just meant to be heard. It's meant to be acted upon, to be lived out. So God, I pray that as we have the opportunity to worship you now, that we would take this few minutes of these couple of songs and we would begin to internalize, God, what is it I need to do today? God, do I need to repent? God, do I need to cry out to you? God, do I need to go up and say, Pastor, would you pray for me that I would have that kind of strength? Whatever it is, I pray that during this time of worship that you would take that step in your seat, that you would come forward and say, Pastor, would you pray with me? Whatever it is you need to do, that you would act upon God's word. And more importantly, when we get done here today, I pray that you would live, each one of us would live in that strength of of fighting for you of not giving up, of continuing to be faithful to you, even in hardship, even in difficulty. And God, I pray for those of you in here today that just need to worship God. I pray that as the worship team is going to sing these next couple of songs, I pray that we would just get lost in praising you for who you are. So many of us have been the recipient of that second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh chances by God. And that makes God worthy of our worship, of our praise. God, we are so thankful for what you've done for us on the cross. We are so thankful for what Jesus has accomplished, that we will be forgiven, that we are forgiven. And I pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts right now. God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask that your presence continue to be with us now. In your holy name, amen.